Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of SF Crossing the Gulf. My name is Karen Burnham, and I'm here with Karen Ward. Hi. And so we have decided to start this new podcast. Its, it's focus is going to be the two of us talking about books, talking about contemporary science fiction books, and also Caribbean literature. Yes, Caribbean speculative fiction, to be precise. Exactly. We put we put a lot of thought into the title, the title SF Crossing the Gulf. We once we decided we wanted to do a podcast, it took us a while to to kick around different ideas for names. Um, <laughs> the early suggestion of the Lord Burnham podcast was was quickly <laughs> rejected. <laughs> well, well, mild, well, mildly quickly. <laughs> no, no, that, that's true. That, that that lasted for a few days. Mm-hmm. But uh, but we hit on the idea of SF crossing the Gulf for for a few reasons. We thought it worked on a on a few different levels. Let's see. One of the things that I, that I thought was that uh, between where I am in Texas and where Karen is in uh, Barbados, uh, the Gulf of Mexico takes up about half that distance. So so that's the sort of geographical level of it. Mm-hmm. And then, Karen, we have the literary and genre so-called divide that we're going to be examining in some of the works that we look at. Right. And then there's the science and, um, and arts divide. Um, we're looking at hard SF, and um, the question as to whether you can get, well, how to put it? You, you have people who love the arts, and you have people who love their physics and other hard sciences, astronomy and so on, and are able to relate to it as easily, one to, as, as easily to the other. So um, that's another aspect of crossing the Gulf that we're looking at. And then, of course, there's the cultural aspect of the Caribbean um, compared to most Western science fiction, speculative fiction. Crossing the sort of international boundaries there. Yeah, exactly. And I know that both you and I um, have enacted that sort of gulf between art and science, especially in our own lives. My background is that my day job is that I work for NASA. I'm an electrical engineer and a physicist. And um, but in my off hours, my hobby is is as a <laughs> a book reviewer and a literary critic, which yeah, has think- has made for a, some slightly awkward conversations in both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> and Karen, how about your background? Well, um, we share the background in physics. Um, my physics only took me to the level of teaching physics, but I also did a specialist in history of science and technology, which was in fact deemed an art specialist. And from there, I've gone into more um, sociology-related courses. In fact, my other hat is as a research consultant in socioeconomic um, research projects. So there's definitely an aspect of, perhaps you can say, the soft sciences coming in there. And also, perhaps, when you examine things like history and um, my quasi-career hobby now, literature, <laughs> still don't, I still don't think of myself because... I do say to people, to be a writer is not necessarily to be a specialist in literature. Um, you, you haven't gone through the, the university training for it, you may not know the jargon, you may not have read the, the essential uh, reading list that's supposed to teach you significant things about, about literature. So I, I'd like to warn people that um, you can't make assumptions about that, and I'm not making assumptions either. But I think it's um, a strong enough hobby now that perhaps I can claim it as well. 
I, I dare say. And we should especially mention that you are the author of Redemption in Indigo, for anybody who might not know, which, as your debut novel, won the Crawford Award, which is how you and I met when you came to the International Conference of the Fantastic and the Arts for that. It also, let me see if I got this right, it won the Mythopoeic Award? Yep, that's right. And was nominated for World Fantasy. That's right, where I saw you the second time in San Diego. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which are, I believe, the only two times, no, three now, two ICFAs and World Fantasy that we've met in person. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whereas my background is much more uh, as a just simple uh, book reviewer and critic and scholar. I give papers at, uh, at the International Conference for the Fantastic and the Arts. I review for Locus Magazine, and I also edit their blog, and I review for places like SF Signal, which is kind enough to host this podcast, and mm-hmm. Strange Horizons. Yes. And I think in a way we can definitely say that you are the physics specialist for the duration of this podcast. <laughs> uh, that's probably fair, whereas you are almost certainly the, the, um, the history of science and the, the context person. Yeah, the sociology aspects. And you also, I think, have a better grasp of the actual genre of of science fiction because of your experience in reviewing and so on. Right, Um, and I did actually make it a point to get educated about the history of the field, both reading uh, nonfiction about it and also going back and reading a lot of the early works in the the genre. mm -hmm. Whereas you, of course, are going to be the expert on the Caribbean side of things. Exactly, yeah, almost by default. (laughs) I, and I say that from the point of view of I, I am standing in for people who know a lot better than I do. And I only hope that I will not, um, you know, sort of fail them. But yes, by, by default, I am the Caribbean um, speculative fiction specialist for the podcast. Right. Mm-hmm. And so our, our concept for the first, um, I, you could almost call it a season worth of, worth of episodes, and, and how many that turns out to be will be totally up in the air. Um, mm-hmm. We're hoping to podcast probably twice a month, once if life gets once a month if life gets hectic, mm-hmm, which it might do. But we we've been trading uh, sort of short lists of our own specialties in terms of reading, um, and we thought we might talk about them. So the first two works that I've recommended to Karen are short stories by Ted Chang which include the collection Story of Your Life and Others, and then also the short story Exhalation. And the other one I've recommended, <laughs> for unsurprisingly to anyone who knows me, is uh, <laughs> Clockwork Rockin by- Rocket by Greg Egan. And mm-hmm. I'm working on a book on Egan's work right now, so that, that makes sense. And mm-hmm. Karen? Right. Um, so I've assigned to Karen um, a book that I did in secondary school called My Bones and My Flute by Edgar Mittelholzer. This is a, a Guyanese author. Um, the, the book itself was published in 1955, so this is our class, one of our classics of the genre. And I wish that I wish it were in print now so I could tell people to go out and read it for themselves so that we can discuss it with some with more people who understand what, what it's about. But we're, we're going to try and do it justice nevertheless because it is a very important book in terms of how it's influenced um, Caribbean literature and Caribbean speculative fiction. The second book that I have assigned to Kieran is called The Rainmaker's Mistake. Which I just got in the mail today. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes, yes. It's by Erna Broadbur. And I, this one's fascinating to me because I first met Erna Broadbur at the um, Boca Slit Fest um, around um, end of April into May in Trinidad. 
and she is again one of the stalwarts, one of the one of the um, sort of uh, the elder authors of the region, and she's also a sociologist. So she tends to use a lot of myth and and folk tale and history and so on in her works. And I will say that um, you know I'm, I'm proud of Karen for for offering to read this one because it's going to be challenging. It's very literary. It's not going to be very straightforward at all. But I think it's very worthwhile, and I'm interested to see what what is going to come out of that. So that's what we have so far. We may have some other works to mention to you later on. You yeah. can get. Rainmaker's Mistake. Of course, you can definitely get um, Ted Chiang's works. You can get the um, the Egan. The only the only problem right now is my bones and my flute. Um, you may be able to get that at a library. In fact, that's probably your best bet right now. Absolutely. Although I should note that Ted Chiang's work. Uh he only has one collection out. It is the story of your life. It had been out of print, but Small Beer Press brought it back. And we yeah. should especially note that Weightless Books, the ebook store, mm-hmm. um, has it as an ebook copy. Perfect, perfect. Yes. Mm-hmm. I almost want to go back and put this at the beginning of the podcast. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert! Yes, <laughs> all these stories that we're going to talk about, because I, for one, have I'm taking the gloves off in this podcast, and I am not going to worry about anybody going, oh no, I didn't read that story from five or fifty years ago, and now you've spoiled the ending for me. That's a very good point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is this is an advanced reader podcast. We assume that you, at least if you haven't read it, you're not going to get upset if it's spoiled for you. You can still go back and find something to enjoy in it. Absolutely. And with Exhalation, every time I read it, no matter how much I know exactly what's going on and exactly what's happened, um, mm-hmm. I, I find something new in that story every time. Yes, exactly. So, can we dive straight into the Chang since we start talking about it? Yeah, absolutely. Do we want to start with Exhalation or do we want to start with Stories of Your Life or Story of Let's- Your Life? Let's start with Exhalation, because that's actually the first one that I read. Okay. Um, And you've always been a fan of his work. And not only you, I've always been hearing great things about his work, but it was the first of his stories that I'd ever read. And I have to say, of the ones to start with, that is a knock-your-socks-off one. uh, (laughs) I mean, it won justly, it won uh, numerous awards, and I think it might be my favorite Chang story, which is saying something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can I can definitely see why because for, to me it succeeds on several levels. If we want to address the somewhat foolish question, I think of what is literary, I would say that you know this can lay claim to that because the writing is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those you want to stop and reread a paragraph just because it sounds so beautiful, just because of the feelings it evokes. So I I think that just in terms of the excellent writing, you know, it's already there. But then in terms of the concept, well, the very first thing I thought about was the Asimov short story called The Last Question. Mm -hmm. Um, What what Exhalation um, shares with The Last Question is that they're basically both entropy stories. The whole question of what happens when um, the universe runs down, what happens when it's not just a case of you as an individual die, but in a way everything dies. What then? And it's it's just done so much better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, w- I want to take a quick diversion because I'm reading uh, the Ke- the latest Kelly and Kessel anthology called Digital Rapture, mm-hmm. and it's all about post humans and singularity. And the reason that it sprung to mind is that the story they open with is Asimov's The Last Question, 
Really? And, you know, I had I had read the story long ago when I was, um, you know, big into reading, reading Asimov, like, in high school. And I mostly remembered the punchline, you know, because yes. it's obviously a build-up to a punchline. It's the let there be light. <laughs> punchline. Yeah. Um, and now that you're mentioning it in the context of exhalation, that makes a lot of sense in that it's, you know, it, it's really focused on the concept of entropy. Mm-hmm. Reading it in Kelly and Kessel's anthology in the context of post-humanity and singularity puts that story really firmly in the context of Olaf Stapleton. And all of a sudden I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's so easy to write off Asimov sometimes for mm-hmm. being quote-unquote shallow. But... Oh, it's... I mean, there might be a little bit more there than I've given the good doctor credit for. (laughs) I should have. I was perhaps a little, a little, you know, a little too quick to say, oh, you know, exhalation is so much better than the last question. To me, it is because it's, it's the writing is better, Mm -hmm. and I do think that there are layers in exhalation, um, sociological layers that are not in in exhalation that are not in the last question. But the last question, punchline notwithstanding, and it is a marvelous punchline always grabbed my attention because it's not just about what will happen at the end, but it's also about becoming. So when you said it was in that anthology, I was like, well, yes, this makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's kind of bizarre because sometimes I don't want to branch off too much on Asimov, but sometimes when it comes to Asimov's writing, I have a, a very love-hate relationship. There are bits of his work that I can that I read and it just seems to sing, you know, that I'm just completely pulled in. And then there are other bits I'm just plodding through. Right, um, right. The gods themselves is a perfect example of that, um, where I pretty much have the book just to read the middle piece and oh, don't care. About that was the strongest part of that book, wasn't it? Exactly. Now, Exhalation um, focuses on one person. Right. And on a sort of a narrow space of a narrow um, duration of time where the question is, um, you know, um, there's a strange phenomenon that a scientist decides he has to um, examine. And in the examination of this, um, this, this, this anomaly, he realizes that it leads to um, the, the conclusion is that the universe, as they know it, is running down. And there will come a point where um, they will no longer have... Um, differential of air pressure, which is what they use to actually um, regulate their thinking. Yeah, at this point, we probably need to to lay out the world building of this story. Basically, everything in this story is based on air pressure. Um, the The beings are all made of metal. Um, they're uh, they're animatronic, but and and perfectly sentient. They're they're just made of metal, and the way they operate is that they get pressurized lungs, and then the lungs release pressure slowly throughout the day. That allows them to do whatever it is they need to be um, doing. And when their lungs are about to run out, they go and get a new set. Mm-hmm. And the lungs are all charged up from a reservoir of pressurized air. Um, the entire universe for them is a cavity. Um, in a chromium uh, with the walls and the ceiling they can't actually see the ceiling from where they are it's a pocket universe but the walls are chromium Uh, the gas is argon they're made of titanium and and and, and one thing that just struck me I forget if it was the second or the third time I read the story everything that all the metals that Chang references are Mm -hmm 
incorruptible metals and yeah. noble gases that that are inert. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the point, the important point he's making is that you are not to associate um, death with decay in this world. Mm-hmm. Right. Nothing it, will ever rot here, even when they or rust or anything else. When when the air pressure all runs out, when everything from that pressurized reservoir has emptied, and there they will all simply stop moving. Um, and consciousness will stop for them. It will all still look perfect, but entropy will still have run its course. Mm-hmm. Now, now here's here's the amazing thing. In a in a way, that's that's the 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 question of the sort of the larger question of where's the universe going. But the other thing in escalation comes down to the question of um, identity. Who are we? How do we think? Um, how does our consciousness um, evolve and, and maintain itself? So there's this amazing, amazing um, sort of central part of the story where the protagonist basically dissects his own brain. While and he's conscious. While he's conscious. It's <laughs> the most amazing thing. And you can picture it. You can picture it the way the, way yeah. the author lays it out. And, and, you get, and you get everything that's happening in there is, is almost like, um, well, you, you just heard us do the little geek help thing. And to tell the truth, you have that feeling as a scientist when you're reading it, because you know he refers to it as as being like an exploded diagram, and he's at the center, and you can visualize it. And the protagonist also has a little dizzy moment, a little geek out moment, realizing that whoa, you know this is what's happening, and 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 the and the brain actually has these gold leaves, and it's the air pressure over the gold leaves that actually creates their thoughts. Well, an important, very important way. So. So what he realizes when he finally, because he's an anatomist, which is a very rare specialty for this kind of race of being, because accidents tend to leave them either fine or completely mangled and with not much to study. So there's a lot they don't understand about themselves. When he looks at his own brain, um, there had been, he describes competing theories about you know what consciousness is. He sees that uh, his brain is made of tiny fluttering gold leaves mm-hmm. you know the thinnest possible gold and mm-hmm. and he realizes that the air pressure um the breeze that's flowing through his brain his consciousness is the pattern mm-hmm. it's not the gold leaves themselves and it's not the air pressure itself it's the pattern of the valves and the relays and how the gold has changed the airflow yes oh man it's it's very I, yeah, existential and all. Yeah. It is. And <laughs> and I remember picking up the story when it was nominated for the Hugo in um I think maybe twenty oh eight. And uh and I started reading it and I thought to myself, Oh no, is is this gonna be the, the first Ted Chang story that, that doesn't really do it for me? Oh no. And then we get to that scene and I'm like, Nope, it's my favorite <laughs> Ted Chang story ever. Oh dear. Yep, yep. It's true, and and to tell the truth, when I read that bit, that that whole sort of dissection bit, that to me was a bit that said hard SF because mm-hmm. that was clearly speaking to the person who's in the scientific community, um, sort of um, pressing the buttons and 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 um, finding the sort of the the, the the tingle points that a scientist would no one would appreciate. Um, it's how to put it on on. On one level, when he talks about things like identity and the society and, you know, their existence and so forth, these are all kind of human condition things, you know, things that, for example, Bradbury was very good at. 
and which can be very accessible to a very large audience. But then within that, he also gives you this, this little kernel of stuff that the scientific community in particular will go, you know, the, the people who really are into science will be like, this, this is a bit that's especially for us. This is the bit that we, we get, that we understand, that kind of, um, you know, gives, gives us feelings in a way. Um, so I liked it for that because it did take those, those two levels, but in a very seamless way. It wasn't like he was saying, you know, this is for you and it's separate and this is for you and it's, and it's on another level completely. They weave in and out of each other. Oh, and yes. All the layers work together in that story. It's so unified. Yes, yes. And, and this is what I find amazing because people try to explain short stories to me. Short story form is not my form. Mm-hmm. I will say that now. And mainly they say, you know, the short story is like the, the big idea. And uh, the novel is more the unfolding and the character arc and the world building and this and that and the next. But I'm looking at, at Chang's work. I'm looking at Exhalation, looking at the others in the collection. And each of his short stories contains such a full world. Yeah, I have not. I have not seen such complex, compact world building um, done in so few pages. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's um, yes, it's amazing. And and not only that, I wonder. I don't think I've mentioned this before to you, but I wonder if you have seen this as well, or if it's just me. So many of his stories, um, the the point of view character, the narrator, always seems to assume you're already part of the world. So when it comes to exposition, there is not a sense of preaching to an outsider. Things unfold very, very naturally. And initially you do end up being a bit, what's going on here? because they're talking as if you already know the jargon, you already know the language, you already know the layout. But then all of a sudden, it's just been pulled together so beautifully that you're like, yeah, I know, I know where I am, and I've always been here. And that's, that's really special. It's funny that you say that, because I agree, it's, it's very immersive, uh, almost all his stories, um, and especially the ones done in pocket universes. This is not the only alternate cosmology story that, that Ted does. Um, but... When you say that, uh, the narrator of Exhalation is literally, specifically speaking to an outsider. Oh, yes, sort of at the end. But <laughs> ah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned that because what I found fascinating is, as you said, you know, these are beings that they're not, they're not human. Right. Um, you know, they're metal. They have a completely different um, thought process. They have a completely different type of universe. Um, there's no sense at all in the story that these are um, fabricated creatures? No, no, it's not like there's a wind-up, it's not like somebody put them, created them and put them there. This is just the way their universe always has been. Exactly. So when he's he's doing his little philosophical um, kind of summary at the end, where he's imagining his world, you know, kind of all wound down and, and dead, only leaving behind, you know, some of the records and the ruins and so forth. And he imagines explorers from other worlds coming into it and seeing what was there and maybe reading the same journal notes that he's making at that very moment. He, he visualizes beings like him. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. He, he even says, I hope you're not just coming here looking for a, a new pr- air pressure differential. Exactly. I hope you're truly exploring the way I've truly explored, you know, my own self and my own universe. 
Mm-hmm. And that, that to me was a punchline in itself. <laughs> As science fiction writers, you know, we're always doing the Star Trek thing where all the aliens basically are, you know, two legs and, and wearing face paint or, you know, prosthetic ears or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically, he just shows that this sort of um, limit of imagination, or, or I shouldn't say limit of imagination, but perhaps what the scientist visualizes that they will be able to communicate with is always going to look like that scientist. Right, right. So it works for me in the sense of, as you say, it being immersive. It's immersive even to the point of view that when they're trying to picture an outsider, even the outsiders like them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so <laughs> I thought that was I thought it was nicely done and very subtly done because that was the kind of thing that I only noticed on what the third reading. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. There's um, so much about. Yeah, other things along the way, you know. <laughs> well, and when we start talking more about the the short story collection, the first time I read that collection was 2004, mm-hmm. which was when I was just starting to get serious about reviewing in the field, but about two years before I was capable of being serious about reviewing in the field. <laughs> and um, rereading it now, eight years later, my whole reading of all the stories has changed so much. It, it, I got to hear about this. Tell me, tell me. Uh, about which? Well, let's see. I would love to hear if you've had any different thoughts, change thoughts on um, 72 Letters, is it? Oh, 72 Letters. Um, mm-hmm. 72 Letters hadn't stood out for me so much when I read it originally. Really? Um, no, it really didn't. I mean, it was it was his golem story, and it was, it, you know, it was like, oh, and, you know, there's the point where you, re- you know, I, I had just remembered the sort of, bare concept of you know pointing out the the similarity between um oh our dna and Mm -hmm. and as information and the 72 letters as information and then you know it 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 all seemed relatively straightforward um Mm -hmm. reading it now (laughs) (laughs) and especially after doing the the in-depth study of egan um there's so much more there about science and its role in society uh-huh. Um, you know, an exploration and I have to say, that story I had a special attachment to. Really? And I'll tell you why. When I was doing history of sense of technology, I um did a paper on Leeuwenhoek, who's oh, okay, the guy yeah. who um, discovered the um well, I say discovered Invented the microscope. The lenses and made the first mic um microscope and set about examining everything he could lay hands on, including semen, mm-hmm. discovered sperm. And um, immediately, there was this interesting thing happening, and, and trust me, this happens a lot throughout the whole history of science, where there are the observations you make, and then there are the expectations that you have <laughs> yeah. color your observations a little further. And then there are the interpretations that you that you um, come to based on both what you've genuinely observed and also what you think you've observed. What I mean by that is that, yes, he definitely saw sperm, but what he thought he saw was a little homunculus, a little, a little fetus right. curled up entire in the head of the of these marzoa. And, of course, we know that's not the case. <laughs> um, you know, you, you need to get into zygote territory at least before you start dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Um, because of that, you had, as I said, some ideas already, some, some sort of societal predispositions 
to to consider well okay what is the, the role of the man in reproduction what's the role of the woman so if you have this idea that the woman is basically like a fertile field and the man is the one of the seed then men are just concerned about um they're how to put it in a way everything that's important is with the man's seed right it can be a woman you know it doesn't it, it almost doesn't matter you know who you marry or who bears your kid or whatever um because um you you have got the entire human being in your seed right yeah as long as they're healthy and vital you're you're good to go so you, you don't you don't care if they're not particularly intellectual you don't care if they um you know might might have some sort of um, moral defect, as the term would go in those in those ages, you, you don't mind any of that because you don't think of any of that being passed down to your child. Oh, right, right. So it has implications for for gender and even for relationships. So all of all of that was coming out in that in that story to me. Well, and, and again, this is a story where Ted takes that kind of idea, you know, of, of homunculi and spermatozoa, and and also that. Um, Kabbalistic magic is mm. is a true thing that that's the way the world works, and he works out the consequences with the utmost rigor. I mean, yes. everything that that would imply. Now, when he hit on the the whole social engineering thing, where you know um, the the protagonist patron was like, "Oh yes," and of course, when we finally get this all all worked out and all settled, we want to start looking at. Um, making sure that the right people breed. Right, right. And Agnes is kind of like, what? <laughs> you know, typical scientists didn't think it through. You didn't know? think it through, right. He'd all just been working on essentially the bioengineering of that world. Exactly. But of course, this is a reality for that period of history. And I say that period of history, but, you know, going right up to um, the, the early um, 20th century, there was still this idea that, you know, of course, if you want your, your population in your country to be healthy, of course it makes sense to, you know, sterilize the feeble or the, the morally suspect or, or, you know, what have you. And, um, okay, this is a slight digression because it's not science fiction, but have you heard of the story by um, Gene Webster called Daddy Long Legs? I've heard of it, but not read it. Okay, no problem. The point is, there's a sequel, which is a lot, not as, not as well known. And part of the reason is that it's dated quite a bit. The protagonist of um, Daddy Long Legs grew up in an orphanage. And then, of course, she gets married to this rich guy at the end. And what she does is she asks um, one of her good friends from university to take over the orphanage that she grew up in that was, you know, some absolutely horrendous place. And she's supposed to take it over and reform it. So there's this beautiful story, again told of letters going back and forth, but it's filled with some absolutely um, hair-raising and sometimes teeth-edging comments about, you know, um, like when she first takes over, she's like, you know, the first thing we did was we got rid of the defectives, <laughs> by which she means that she just wanted to deal with what she called normal children. Right, right. Those who were, were, were deaf or mute or had, you know, any kind of learning or, or, or mental disabilities, she got them off to the correct institutions. But the term was defective. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's, it's definitely dated. But, you know, she talks a lot about this idea of, well, you know, we have a responsibility to, to, to make sure that people who are feeble-minded or people who, you know, have these, these moral weaknesses shouldn't shouldn't breed because then when they do we end up with all these children in these orphanages because they can't take care of their kids or the you know 
And I was like, oh my goodness. But there you have it. That's what the society is about. So when that bit came up in the short story, I was like, this is perfect. This is perfect. This is exactly what happens. Um, and and it's, it's interesting because you need that kind of reality check. It doesn't even seem to come out as much as I would like to see in some of the near or far future science fiction. Mm-hmm. There's this assumption almost that along with scientific knowledge must come a certain level of enlightenment. Yeah, which the so, 19th century more or less proved was not true. <laughs> Precisely, you know. So, so there's still this sort of idea of, yes, you know, we're going to discover all sorts of great things to make life easier for everybody. And of course, we will use it wisely. <laughs> it depends on what you think of as wise, because, you know, here in this story, this man was like, well, yes, of course, we're going to use this wisely. And this is what we're going to do. And the fellow's like, what? You don't want poor people to breathe? He's like, well, you know, there's a reason they're poor. Of course we don't want them to breathe. Right, right. (laughs) And and you've got to think, so at at the moment that that Ted must have had the idea of, oh, hey, that that Leave Winnehawk, you know, the drawings and whatever, what if that were really true? And then that links pretty neatly with the whole Kabbalistic um, magic. And so it's easy to blend those two. And then he had to choose when, where does he set the story yeah, and yeah. so it it was a very deliberate choice to set it right at that moment in time because it feels very much like the late nineteenth century. Yes, yes. And uh, although the story would have been written before steampunk came to prominence, well, that's a good point. Yeah, that is the steampunk era. It is. Yeah. And again, he in a very short story. Well, not very short. That one's a little longer, but um, in a short story, tackles. Mm-hmm a whole big tangle of social issues that a lot of steampunk has tended and and not not that there isn't steampunk that hasn't delved into that but that a lot of steampunk has glossed over yeah that's true that's very true and that's what i mean when i say these are short stories but they are so satisfyingly complex (laughs) that you know you can you can happily just like digest this and, and just like go away and think about it and come back and read it again. And you, you, you feel like you get a novel's worth at the end of the day. Right, yeah, I, yeah. I hear that people have been saying, oh, you know, um, what's, gonna, what's it going to be like when he writes a novel? And I'm kind of like, I don't really care. You know? I know, <laughs> yeah. People are like, Ted, you have to write a novel. And I'm like, no, don't do it if you don't want to, because these are so perfect, such perfect gems. Well, and then when you start reading you know, Chang's work all all together. I mean the 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 resonance between Exhalation and Seventy Two Letters is amazing. Yeah. Um they, they both have mannered styles of prose narration, but that's very deliberate and it's a result of their settings. Mm-hmm. Um in Exhalations because the guy is um addressing some posited explorer and in Seventy Two Letters it's because he's echoing the um the feel of the 19th century novel. Mm-hmm. And then, if you think about it, both protagonists are scientists who are curious about things in their for their own sake. Yes. The anatomist had had the idea of doing this brain dissection experiment, but he, he held off on it until he, um, there was some... Something compelling happening to say, right, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. Right, then there, there was a trigger where... Um, uh, the clocks, which run on a different different mechanism, started disagreeing with the inhabitants' perception of time, mm-hmm. and he thought that was enough to to sort of trip him over the edge to to go. You know, I really need to look into this more. 
mm-hmm. and uh, Robert Stoney in 72 Letters, he's described as a child um, playing with a little golem and altering the, um, the little uh, Kabbalistic script that animates the golem to try and find what are the limits of identity. You know, yes. what, what are the limits of a program that can animate a golem? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's only after they each discover this this existential threat where uh, the anatomist discovers that his world is going to run down and Robert Stoney, uh, along with his patron, discover that the human race will end in five generations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that kicks off the more extensive part of the plot. But... But... That discovery of the existential threat wouldn't even happen without the innate curiosity of the scientist. Mm-hmm. And um, not only the innate curiosity, but almost it's kind of funny because on the surface, the protagonists seem to be quite um, conservative, family um, about people. Mm-hmm. But there's a part of them that's dying for a reason to take a risk. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that's 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 what the crisis does. It gives them a reason to take a risk in an area that, you know, if they'd just done it, people would be like, well, I'm crazy, why are you doing that? You know? <laughs> so it's, it's kind of interesting as well because it, it does, again, speak to a certain scientific m- mindset in a way where you do think to yourself, yes, you know, what if I could do X, you know, and, and have people back me for it, you know? I mean, can you imagine as being as you are a NASA engineer, can you imagine what it must have been like for the um, people who were always interested in, um, you know, going past the limits of Earth, finally having the politicians saying to them, you know what, we have this kind of Cold War situation and we're going to sink some money in to get into the moon. Oh, yes. Yes, I have a reason to take a risk. And I mean, the risks were huge, were they not? Oh, absolutely. No, I know one guy who actually worked on Apollo. Oh my! He was a pyrotechnic engineer that I worked with, and he oh. was, you know, he was a young engineer during Apollo and the pyrotechnics, and oh, oh listen to his stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and these, and literally, these are things that, under normal circumstances, people would just look at you and say, "Are you absolutely out of your head?" Mm-hmm. But there's there's something about the scientists that would just be like, you know, just give me a reason, give me a reason to be able to do this without being like put in jail. <laughs> Or put in an institution, and I will do this. And 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 um, so that's another thing that that he does and does so well in several of his stories. I'm now thinking about um, story of your life. Okay, as- now now I have to talk about story of your life because when I talked about the difference between reading it in 2004 and 2012, that's mm-hmm. the story that changed the most for me. Ah, that's here. And and one of the things is that now. I mean, Ted Chiang is a science fiction writer, and if you ask him, he will tell you very clearly he is a science fiction writer, and there's no bones about it. But a lot of what he writes, for instance, 72 Letters, that's, that's all, it's rigorously done from a premise, but the premise is fantastic. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, that couldn't happen in our universe. Yeah. <laughs> um, exhalation could potentially happen if you posit a creator, but the story does not need that creator. It, it happens in its own pocket universe. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Babylon. That's a, a, a alternate cosmology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, once I accepted Story of Your Life as an alternate cosmology, instead of trying to make it work with our physics and neurolinguistics, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. found it much more comfortable to read. My first time through, I really had trouble suspending disbelief with that story. The idea yeah. that by learning this alien language, the scientist was able to completely alter her perception of time really didn't work for me the first time around. So are you telling me then that, especially in hard SF, the, the, um, the MacGuffin has to be a lot more rigorous? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In the hardest hard SF. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Gary Wolf and I have talked before where, where we have put forth the theory that the only two truly hard SF writers writing in the field actively right now are Ted Chang and Greg Egan. Mm-hmm. Even though Ted writes things that could be considered fantasy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's because of the rigor with which he develops his premises. Right, right. Um, which is purely scientific. But like I say, story of your life, oh, for the first time the first time I read it, I was just like, I just don't buy it. Because it does link very closely to real physics. And what he talks about, the calculus of variations, is all true. Mm-hmm. But that's not... I couldn't make the leap from there to being able to um, picture your whole life as a whole. You well, know, without... here, here's where I reveal a little, a little secret about myself, or not secret as the case may be. Okay. As you know, I am not just a sociologist. I study sociology of religion. Mm-hmm. And what I do see is a very strong thread in, um, in, in, in Chang's stories is not merely... A sense of philosophy in the sense of you know who am I where am I going and so forth but um, there is a um, there are some aspects of, of, of religion and religion is not the right word I was going to say theology but the problem of saying a word like theology is that um, people don't necessarily have a full understanding of what that word means but when you start talking about um, things like um, and we're not even getting to Hell is the absence of God yet, although of course that is in my mind. But specifically thinking about perceptions of time, time as as nonlinear, mm-hmm. or, or time as um, something that is evolving, but but not necessarily in a fashion that will be perceived as linear from someone on the outside of the universe. Does that make sense? Say that again. Time, time, or shall we say events, you know, creation, existence, evolving, but not in a way that would be perceived as linear from someone on the outside of the universe. Okay. What I mean by that is, um, as you know, the universe is your space, time all wrapped up together. Right. So if, and, and this, is, this is actually still even going back to history of science and technology, because um, a lot of the early um, scientists did almost um, have their theology bleed over into how they were trying to perceive the universe. No, absolutely. I think most of them did. Right. So, so you have these you have these questions of you know God creates the universe. That means that God is not part of the universe. God is outside of the universe. Well, this is just this is really rough, and this is only one view. I don't want to get into the technical terms. So if you then take that and then sort of draw a line from that to the universe is where you have time wrapped up, time and space wrapped up. So you're actually dealing with a, an objective observer who is outside of the universe and outside of time. How do they see the events? How do they see your life? Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. So that's how, that's how I approach the, the, my story of your life. 
as as almost a god eye view of this. And and remember, the 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 story is also about free will. Right, and that that's. But of course, the, the, I think the problem I have is that it didn't go all the way to that viewpoint, so it still had limits. You know, mm-hmm. the woman didn't know the answers to everything. She just saw her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the balance, again, the first uh, upon first reading, mm-hmm. it didn't quite... I couldn't, I couldn't start from the same conclusions and, and, or start from the same premises and end up at the same conclusions that Ted did for the purposes of that story. Right, right. But, I, like I say, moving, shifting the way I read it, to mm-hmm. be an alternate cosmology story, and then, of course, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, the other thing that changed between 2004 and 2012 is that I became a mother. <laughs> <laughs> so that the emotional core of that story hit me way harder. Oh, good dear. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, man. Oh. Well, because well, it's such a beautiful story, and it's so true. I mean, it's so true. It's worth it even when you know that tragedy might happen. She knows that tragedy will happen. Yes. And it's still worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, have we actually properly explained what the story is about? No, not a bit. Not oh, a shoot. bit, frankly. <laughs> Why don't you We're take that one? Have this conversation with each other. Forget about those who are listening in on the podcast. Yeah, to those uh, listener people. They're well, fictional she's, anyway. She is. Um, she's brought in to try to um, translate this um, to communicate with these aliens, and in learning to communicate with them, she gets uh, almost infected with how they view time. Am I right? Yeah, basically through their language. Um, basically, and, and it is very much a, an idea of neurolinguistic programming um, yeah. that in learning their language, where they perceive time in this holistic fashion, she mm-hmm. becomes able to do the same for her own life, and that unfolds gradually. And there, there's an interwoven narrative where the, there's a linear narrative of scenes of her tackling this communicating with aliens problem and then there's a non-linear scene where she's addressing her daughter at various points in her daughter's life and she says yeah i remember when born daughter (laughs) right and it's thing at the what you've realized at the end is that the alien narrative all takes place before this daughter is born yeah and so that at the moment she chooses to conceive her daughter, she already knows, and, and you learn very early on, she says, I remember when they called me down to the morgue because mm-hmm. there'd been an accident and they needed me to remember your, you know, they needed me to identify your body. Right. So you learn at the beginning that mm-hmm. her daughter's died young. Yeah. And, oh. She and learned that her, da- her daughter died young. You learn that her marriage ended in divorce. Right, right. So she, she does several things. She chooses to, to, to be with the man who will be her husband, who she will end up divorcing. She chooses to conceive a child that she knows is going to die young. Um, and, and, you know, sort of the, the end point is her kind of alone. It sounds so horrible to put that, but, you know, because, I mean, you've got friends, you've got other family, but to, for the purpose of the short story, she's starting this thing going into this web of relationships that she knows is going to have an end. And that's, that's where the question of free will comes in, the question of choice. There's, they're saying, if you already know something's going to happen, where's, where's the concept of free will? Right, and where's- she has a big chunk reconciling those two concepts, that she knows what's going to happen, but she still has free will. Yeah, and I, I thought that was fascinating. I Absolutely. Thought that was fascinating. And, that, and that's, like, 
huge chunks of theology all over again. Well, and I really like the part where he, he talks about performative language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there are things that can only happen because you say them, like I pronounce you man and wife. Mm-hmm. And, and that without... Even though at a wedding everyone knows that the the minister, you know, at a Christian wedding, the minister is eventually going to say, I now pronounce you man and wife, Mm -hmm. um, it has to be said to happen. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. can't just not say it because you know it would have happened. And and again, the first time through I didn't quite buy it, I'm still not entirely sure I buy it, but now I'm totally willing to grant it. Well, again, to me, this ties back to the whole question of the whole um, concept of being able to use the, the, the Kabbalistic stuff, because the idea of performative language, you know, let there be light, mm-hmm. that's an example of it. Yeah, yeah. It's still, it's still, it's still in a way, ties back to, um, a, you know, this, this religious or theological concept of um, words that make things as they are, words that make things become. Right, a lot of religions have gods that have power through through speaking, right? Exactly, yeah. Or magic, for that matter. The will and the word, and, um, and um, even the Diane Duane wizards thing as well, they have a particular speech, and in that speech is when they can actually work their magic. Mm-hmm. And their magic, mind you, is a very scientific kind of magic. It's, it's very structured, it's got rules, it's got consequences, it's not, you know, so it's... Um, so yeah, so, the, so that's, that's definitely built into it. Um, there was something else you mentioned. Half a sec, half a sec. Let me not lose it. Um, right, predestination. That's the word I wanted to use. Uh huh. It's all about balancing. Can you have predestination? And can you have free will? So he's 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 taken um, these this this sort of religious debate really, and and hidden it in a layer of the story. Right, right. So well, he does so that, a lot. Of, he does a lot of that because another thing that is brought to the foreground in this story that we all do that's probably the wrong way to put it but he he foregrounds the fact that she knows that her daughter's going to die and 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 even more trivial things she says you know i remember when you were struggling with your homework and you you know lashed out at me because i didn't help you Mm -hmm. um i remember when you graduated from high school and i was so proud um the, the little things too but again with tinged with tragedy because of what we know Mm-hmm. Well, all of us that have children are signing up for the tragedy that might happen. We don't yeah. know it, but, you know, there's going to be the good times and the bad times. And, mm-hmm. and you're really signing up to, you know, uh, for there to be an end. Mm-hmm. And we don't tend to think of that. It tends to be in the background. But we've all done it. We just don't all do it consciously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big gamble, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's a huge gamble. And, and you know, big, my, my baby's uh, 10 That's what free love boils down to, doesn't it? Right, yeah. You take the risk. So it's, it's just showing that scientists take risks in other ways as well, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, that, no this, is, this, is, this is fascinating because um, it, we have been talking about the whole idea of the scientists taking the risk. But, but here, because this is... Um, and, and this is an important point. We do often discuss the question of female scientists, how female scientists are portrayed in, in science fiction. And I think this was a, a very good example of a female protagonist in a scientific um, milieu. And I say that because, yes, she was a linguist, which you can just think of as being an arts thing, but a linguist helping aliens, you know. No, she's functioning as a scientist, pure and that, simple. <laughs> and in fact, her, her husband that she... Um, 
meets through the, the alien contact program is a physicist. There you go. And, and to me, it's kind of funny because we talked about these other scientists being given this big risk. And, and that it actually turns up in the story as well. Her big risk is, is her free will to choose to go ahead with these things regardless of how it's going to right and, and in that story the risk is the the everyday choice yes the, the, the mundane which is absolutely brilliant which from is my so point. true yeah 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 so so i think that you that you and gary have to expand your definition of ted chang a bit okay he's not just giving you hard sf and by hard sf i mean rigorous science um, accurate and sympathetic and evocative, shall we even say, portrayal of the scientific community and, and how how um, academics and science react to both their colleagues and to the, the universe, the science that they're uncovering. Mm-hmm. But he also does, um, I would say, the sociology, um, philosophy, um, theology thing very, very well. well no, he- that's the thing with Ted, it's all there. Yeah. And well, and the other thing, um, women yeah. in science and, and mothers. So ever since I got pregnant, <laughs> I've been complaining about the fact that mothers are largely absent from science fiction. Um, it, it's like women who, once they have children, either just cease to exist, they're completely erased from the stories, or mm-hmm. they, um, they have to stop having adventures. Oh, yes. And, and, you know, to an extent, that makes perfect sense. I heard somebody ask about, have you read A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengel? I have, yes. Yeah. Somebody asked, well, why didn't Mrs. Murray go running after her husband instead of <laughs> leaving it to Meg and, and, um, and Calvin? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like, well, because she had four kids at home, frankly, that was the correct choice. <laughs> you know, you can't just go gallivanting off across the universe, you know. Um, I thought you were going to say something different. Really? I thought you were going to say she, she couldn't leave her lab. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too, man. She had a sweet academic setup in the later she, books. No, but they no talked about making stew over the Bunsen burner. I used to visualize that like mad. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> no, and Mrs. Murray, I mean, she's underrated, but frankly, she was pretty awesome. And I don't know how she worked out the arrangement with her university to set up everything she did at home, but man, I wish I could do that. <laughs> but, okay, but getting back, story of your life... Has the the mother and scientist role integrated mm-hmm. so well? And and when I read it just just in the last couple of weeks, I was just like, this this exactly this is what we need more of. Mm-hmm. That you mm-hmm. can be both and you can have both, and there's nobility in both. And yes. oh man, it was just stunning. I, and it was so again refreshing to me. Now I found it refreshing, and I also found it effortless. Yeah, yeah, doesn't, oh. You read it, I read it, and I reread it, and I read it, and then afterwards I thought, oh, wait a minute, yeah, we don't often see female scientists, especially as you see mothers and whatever. And then I was like, no, wait a minute, that's really good. But there was no sense of, look, here I am, about to do a groundbreaking thing. Right, no, none of that, none of the, the triumphal. I'm very sorry because I don't want to now make anybody who is going to write something feel away. But <laughs> yes, there are times when you do read a story and you're like, you get the sense of the author patting themselves on the mm-hmm. back, saying, look, look, see, I have introduced this marginalized character. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, now, okay, so that leads me to Divide by Zero. Uh, oh. Now, Divide by Zero, I remember thinking, 
And again, the, sec- the it hadn't made much of an impression on me the first time I, I read it, or at least it, the impression hadn't lasted eight years. Um, and it was something I'd had a little trouble with the premise the first time around. But tell me if I'm crazy, but I feel like the genders could have been swapped in that story and it would have felt normal. And it feels, <laughs> it feels fine. It's a beautiful story. Uh-huh. But I feel like a tradition, quote unquote, traditional author would have swapped the gender roles. So the man would have been the scientist who is now having trouble and thoughts of suicide, and the woman would have been the empathetic, supportive spouse trying to work through it. I don't think you're crazy. In fact, I think if you'd swapped the genders, you would have the genders could have been swapped. And not only if not only that, if they had been swapped, you would have been looking pretty much at your basic, you know, Asimov type story, you know, sort of, um, you know, golden era. I mean, era. I think there's a still a little more there. Um, even mm. if the genders have been swapped, it's still an interesting and beautiful story about math. Well, I, was, I thought you were going to say about relationships. <laughs> well, the, the math still would have been there. And that's something that Asimov never would have gotten that far into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're right, the relationship still would have been there, but it would have... But yeah, it would have felt a lot more, a lot more traditional. And and I, if I had read that story with the gender slipped, I never even would have noticed the gender thing. You know what I mean? It's so much the default. Yeah, yeah. But but it's kind of funny because when I read it, um, again, maybe this is him being effortless. That didn't smack me between the eyes at no, all. No, no, not a bit. Um, you call it to my attention, and I was like, oh yes, that's true. But not only that, I think there was something about. Well, this is this is going to sound a little vague and wishy-washy, but just bear with me. There was something about the way she fell out of love with the topic, as well as falling out of love with the man, that just seemed so parallel to the point where you felt that it had to be a woman. I don't. I'm not sure I read it that way. I saw her falling out of love with the subject and the husband falling out of love with her. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure she was cognizant of how much her relationship with him had changed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, not to the very end. You're quite right about that. And, but, but in a way... Okay, half a sec, half a sec. Let me not tie up myself. Well, and of course, we've completely neglected a plot summary again. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Go for it, yes. Well, okay, so in this one, you you start out and a woman who's a mathematician, a very brilliant mathematician, has made a suicide attempt, and her husband, who had made a suicide attempt when he was younger, is trying to help her through it. You then go back and find out sort of why, and it's that she'd basically proven that mathematics is not... that mathematics is arbitrary. Um, that that it's not an uncovering of some ideal reality. Exactly. That any number can equal any other number, and it's all arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of an extension of Gödel's Ger- um, incompleteness theorem, mm-hmm. uh, taken to extremes. Which again is the reason why the first time I read it, I kind of had trouble buying <laughs> into the suspending my disbelief. Um, but now that I read Ted more as a alternate cosmology author and focus more on the relationships, it, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was very, very well done. Although this, and so 
and then you learn more about the husband and wife's relationship to each other, their relationships to other people, and uh, at the end, the husband more or less just can't deal with it. He just doesn't get why this is so upsetting to her. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to figure out why I had this strong sense of she'd sort of fallen out of love with him. I'm not and sure I, she was ever in love with him. Well, uh, you raised an important point there. <laughs> um, but but I think it's because when when the devastating thing happened, where um, the, the bedrock, which for her was mathematics, collapsed in her world, um, I almost feel as if the fact that he almost became non-essential because that's when her suicide attempt started, correct? Non-essential. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. I see what you're saying. So, I keep thinking that if he had at least been a part of her bedrock, you know, she would have turned to him. So, in a way, what he was reacting to was not just sort of, I don't understand why this is so important to you and falling out of love with her, but really a sense of so that was your entire bedrock, you know. I'm not. I'm not actually a part of your of, of your foundation. Ooh, what good you, point. Good point. So, so, you, so you. So then, when she kind of, in a way, comes to her senses and and tries to, um, you know, thank him for being there and whatever, and and he's almost already gone. He's already distant. I almost get a feeling of her now trying to find something that's bedrock, and he's kind of like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm too little, too late. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I think that's why I got that feeling of her always having been more in love with the subject than with him, and him kind of realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really like that reading. That makes a lot of sense. And um, and that's kind of interesting because that's a reality as well for quite a lot of people. And 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 I when I say quite a lot of people. Um, again, you talked about if, if the genders were flipped, this would have this would have been a story that looked very familiar. And yes, if the genders were flipped, the idea of a husband, or let's just say a man, a career man, who is um, completely wrapped up in his work and that's his passion, and you know, wifey's there to come home to, sort of thing, and be supportive. Um, that kind of story, if something happened to completely destroy his career or or the thing that he considered to be most important in his work then there would be no question that that would almost be like sufficiently um, earth-shaking for him to commit, commit suicide. Yeah, and, yeah. And the, it was just an auxiliary of support. And that the woman but, would be expected not to necessarily be upset by that, frankly. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, oh yeah. Whew. Whew. Yeah, I'm- <laughs> okay, so we should probably start to wrap it up. I think there's a lot more to talk about in Story of Your Life uh, that we can talk about next, or the the collection, I should say, uh, mm-hmm. that we can talk about in the next episode, and maybe we'll start to get into my bones and my flute, Al- although no promises made, we're, we're winging this. Or, I have to admit, I can see myself bringing up Chang again when we start her discuss Egan. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, don't. You, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I had to stomp on myself talking to because I was going to launch in on my here's how you relate Egan and Exhalation and 72 Letters, which is like half of chapter four, and I didn't. So I'm waiting. <laughs> okay, okay. Aren't you proud in fact, of me? In general, 
in general, the same way how you know we bring in other works and so on, um, please do not think that any one podcast is, is dedicated solely and entirely to one book and then we're not going to mention it again. It's going to, it's going to keep coming up. Oh, they'll, they'll keep coming up. Absolutely. No, there, there are resonances here. Just roll with it. We're, we're working this out as we go along. The main thing is that um, we do want you... In fact, what we need to do, what we need to do is maybe just ask them to put a little warning at the beginning, you know, before you listen to this podcast, you may want to go and read these works. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think we can do that. I think we can do that. And that and that might help or, you know, only opens up and definitely we'll put a big spoiler warning across. Yes, definitely. Might as well, heck, we should have renamed this the, the Spoilery SF Across the Gulf <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Yes, yes. SF across the spoiler gulf. <laughs> oh, I, I like the ring of that, yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say thank you so much for suggesting Ted Chang as uh, one of the people we had to discuss for Hard SF. Because... Oh, you are more than welcome. I'm always happy to share the joy of that kind of, uh, that kind of author. Yeah. And um, Ted, all I can say is please keep writing. Write at your own pace. Write well, as you well do. And... <laughs> Yeah, just eager to see what you come up with next and, and keep sneaking in all that marvelous philosophy and theology and all that kind of good stuff that the scientists keep missing because it's what it's what I, I love stories that you have to reread mm. you have to reread mm-hmm. them because you're going to find more each time you have to reread them because the language is so beautiful you have to reread them because the characters you just kind of want them to live again all that is in there fantastic absolutely Okay, well, thank you very much, and we will talk to you again in a couple weeks. Yes, enjoy. Take care.